today's episode, we are joined by Alina, a resident of California who was diagnosed with lymphoma and a brain tumor over 12 years ago. Since the diagnosis, she had tried the standard treatment of care, only to experience the rarest and most harrowing of side effects. Recognizing that traditional medicine wasn't helpful in her case, Alina has been experimenting with various homeopathic remedies for over a decade and continues to live in conjunction with her cancer. Thank you, Alina, for sharing your unique story with us while advocating for quality end-of-life care. We hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. And today we are here with Alina Hammer. I'm really excited to talk to you today, Alina. You are our first guest who is, uh, I guess, considered a patient who's similar, someone similar position as myself in a similar position as myself. So uh, it's exciting because we've talked with a lot of different professionals and it's always nice to hear from another person who is kind of in the same boat. But we always like to start by giving our guests the opportunity to just give some general information about themselves. So anything you'd like to share with the listeners, we'd love to hear. Thank you again for joining us. That's great. So I'm really grateful to be here and for you both uh, giving me this space to use my voice. So uh, thank you so much for that. And I did prepare a little bit of a, of a bio about myself. So that will help people understand. So I am, um, I'm from New York. I'm a New Yorker. I was born in Brooklyn and uh, my father's family lived in New York. My mother's family lived in New Jersey and eventually we moved to Jersey. Then I went to college at Columbia University in Manhattan. And then I came to California. So I uh, never married and never had children. So I was able to travel a lot. And I've traveled to different countries. Um, which changed my life completely. Uh, when you travel and you see other cultures, you know, you realize that we're all in this together and how much alike we are, and that the, our, our samenesses are stronger than our differences. And so it was a really uh, life-changing experience for me. I'm grateful for that. I applied to be a bus driver at San Francisco Muni they had 2,000 drivers, and there were only two women. And those two women had been hired during the Second World War. So they hadn't hired any women in like 30-plus years. So I applied to be a driver. And when they denied me, then I was going to um, file a class action suit against them. Because, But they hired me. But that they hired me and took the fun out of it. But that is when my political activism began right then. I'm a longtime labor leader. I've worked on civil rights issues. I've tried to get um, marijuana legalized twice before it actually happened. I worked on women's rights, LGBT rights, but I've always had my core has always been the labor movement. And actually all the skills that I use now for medical aid and dying, I learned in the labor movement. 
Uh, so early in the 80s, HIV and AIDS came to our community and there was suffering like, like we never saw before or since. And people were asking for help to die peacefully. We used to say it was like a nightmare that they couldn't wake up from. But back then there was no legal way for someone to end their life peacefully. And that's when medical aid and dying first came on my radar. So HIV and AIDS epidemic, it changed my life forever. The epidemic taught me a bunch of stuff. I learned that I was actually going to die someday. I was young and I was like, never thought about death. I was really in denial, I guess. But I learned never to leave anything unsaid. If you love somebody, tell them. If you're proud of somebody, tell them. And I learned to never leave anything undone because life is fragile. No bucket list. This means if you want to do something, main plans and do it. I also realized that all these small things that I was stressing about all the time were not so important. And I learned not to give a fuck about the small things. I've been doing into like work since then. It's been 40 years now. And I never thought medical aid and dying would be legal in my lifetime. But now, thanks to an organization called Compassion and Choices, medical aid and dying is legal in 10 states and Washington, D.C. And we're on the ground in several other states. So I believe this is the civil rights issue of our generation whose time has come. I'm going to finish my intro by saying that all the work that I do and every trek that I took to Sacramento to get this law passed, all the presentations I do, every interview I do, including this one today, I do in honor and in memory of all those people who suffered so during the AIDS pandemic. I'm currently a fierce advocate for patient-directed care, which I know we're going to talk about, and medical aid in dying, which I know we're going to talk about. I'm a storyteller for Compassion and Choices, as are you. I lead a Compassion and Choices action team in Santa Cruz County, and I also help facilitate death cafes for the local hospice here. So that's basically an intro of myself and how I became involved in medical aid and dying, which I'm sure you were gonna ask me that question. Yeah, thank you for sharing lots of good information there. What was your draw to California from New York going from East Coast to West Coast? I had, um, I had a brother that was out here. He was interning in LA and my, my uh, college fees were, too expensive and I was going to have to drop out of college. So he said, Oh, come to California. The college here is free. So it used to be back then a college was just had to pay like a tuition fee or something, but other was free. So I came out here and I never left. I fell in love with California. I never left. <clears throat> it would, it's a hard place to leave after spending time here and kind of finding your way in uh in your area your space what was the, your favorite area that you visited you mentioned visiting other countries, countries. and different spots if you had oh. to pick one what was your favorite or maybe most memorable so i guess i 
so I think Morocco was most memorable because the, the culture was so, it was the first time I had ever been in a culture that was so different. If you like, I would say that Spain is my favorite country. I went back three times, but in other countries where I went, people, they dressed like us, you know, and they looked like us, but they spoke a different language and they ate different food, maybe to different music. But in Morocco, the culture was so different than anything I ever seen before. So that was pretty uh, memorable, but Spain, the people are just so, they're so happy and friendly. And I like that they have that little siesta, you know, <laughs> the day and they're not like driven like that. And sure, I'd have to say Spain and I'm a beach person. So I just went, you know, up and down that Spanish coast there, Costa del Sol. So Look at you. Perfect. Mm -hmm. You found your way to some good spots, especially the beach spots. I'm with you. I, I love being a beach bum. Yay. Yeah. California is a good place to do that. And, and I live in, well, you do as well. We both mm -hmm. live in similar, not exactly, but similar towns on the beach towns. Absolutely. Yeah. Very blessed. We know what's good. So you mentioned that when you were younger, you hadn't really considered the concept of death or just thought much about it. And it was the HIV AIDS epidemic that kind of got you more involved or reflective on that topic. Do you feel that in our country and I guess society, people are afraid to have discussions about death or feel that it's an uncomfortable discussion, maybe they avoid it, or what, what, what's your experience there and how you perceive that in our country? Well, I, I, I'm grateful for that question. And um, I want to say that I have been doing end of life work for 40 years. So I've been around a lot of people that are dying. And this is my experience that we live in a death denying culture. We can't even say the word dead or died. We use the word passed or passed on or uh, bought the farm or, you know, left their body. I, I think we think that if we say the word dead, if we talk about it, that we're going to die. So if we don't talk about it. We won't die, which, of course, is ridiculous. So um, it's really a problem that, you know, I was 30 years old and I never thought about I never thought about death. When I was nine years old, my uncle Eddie um, had a heart attack and died in our backyard while everybody was, the whole family was there and he was playing basketball and he died. They made all the children go upstairs into the room, into a room so we wouldn't see what was going on. They wanted to hide, shield us from this death. Of course, we watched everything through the window upstairs, <laughs> but um, we never talked about it. You know, that that was a lesson to us that not to talk about death, that death was something kind of secretive and odd. And I think that's pretty common um, in, throughout different cultures within our country. Do you feel that being involved in end of life care has helped you grow as a person and become more comfortable with the idea of death? Has it changed your relationship with death? And that idea on topic. 200%. So when I um, talk about my story, what happened to me, but 
when I was first uh, given the diagnosis and thought I would die, even though I had been doing end of life work for like maybe 30 years, I was very fearful. I was fearful of my own death. And this doing this work has allowed me to do the work that I needed to do to get to a more accepting place uh, about my own death. So I absolutely think that. And I do, that is why I like to co-facilitate the death cafes for hospice, because it is a place where people go to talk about death. A lot of times, even there, they talk about grief, but not death. And or they'll talk about someone else's death, but not their own death. And I'm not sure that this is true, but it might be true that that unless you get your own diagnosis, that you people don't face their death. That it's just too hard. I'm not sure that's true, but I think that might be true. Tell us a little bit about death cafes. We've heard a little bit about those uh, here on the podcast in reference to them to our listeners. As you're more involved in that area and uh, grouping, tell us about it. What's it all about? Well, people gathered together. It first started uh, by a man in um, England who wanted to talk about death. And of course, nobody wanted to. So it's, he started in his living room giving people tea and I don't know, biscuits or crumpets, whatever the version is over there. <laughs> sure. And and now I don't want to offend anybody's culture. <laughs> You're so, fine, um, friend. <laughs> but um, it's now spread, you know, around the world and people come together. And now we do them on Zoom because of COVID, but in person and we have tea. And of course, it's America. So there's coffee and there's tea and some kind of um cookies and we put in fruit and stuff but uh, people gather around in circle there's no agenda there's no um leader we just gather together and everybody answers just one question and that question is what brought you here today and we go around the circle and people answer that question. And then from there, we see if there's any common threads of people that want to talk about or need to talk about the same thing. That's cool. That's fascinating. And I feel like it could be beneficial for people. Uh, I agree with you in that this is a topic that seems like it's shielded from people in our country and society. And since starting this podcast and working with Compassion and Choices, talking with people like you, as well as Serene and so many other volunteers and advocates within this uh, realm and movement, it really has, for myself personally, helped shape my relationship and perspective with death in a positive way. And I, I feel much more comfortable and uh just okay with the whole idea and concept and it's not as frightening and i feel like it's i have kind of come to a better way of accepting and understand death and such so good things from that and i i do think that it's something we need to people need to think about it's Hi. we all share this it's an experience we will all have at some point there is no avoiding it 
Um, you made good points when you talked about how it seems like in this country, we kind of have that idea, like we're invincible and we'll just keep living forever. And with medicine as well, it is, you know, they, there's a bill of ways to extend the life, but there's also other situations where people get sick, like you and I, and we are battling diseases that unfortunately will not be cured. And that will lead us to it can lead to some pretty horrific suffering, which is why we are here talking about medical aid in dying. And I was hoping you'd share your experience and tell us a little bit about your, if you're okay with it, your health history and prognosis and what uh, led you to being here with us today as well. Okay, well, let me, if, before one minute, it's a bit of a story, but um I have found a node, a lymph node on my neck one day, and I had no idea what that meant. I mean, now I understand it's related to your immune system and everything, but I had no idea what that meant. I showed it to my acupuncturist, and she said, um, I don't think it's anything, but to show it to my primary care doctor. Well, soon after that, I got sick, but like really sick. And all I did was sleep and sweat and sleep and sweat. So now I know that that's cancer, but I had no idea. I went to the doctor and she said I had mononucleosis. That's a disease for 20 year olds in college that lasts about a month. And I kept doing that for like four, four and a half months. I kept going back and she kept saying it's mono. It's still mono. So I have a brother who's a doctor and he said, go to your doctor and tell her you want to see a hematologist and an infectious disease doctor. So after a series of tests, I was diagnosed with stage four lymphoma, which is um, a blood cancer and it's incurable. So they were scanning uh, my neck for lymph nodes and they found a spot right here behind my ear right here and the doctor said i don't think it's anything but go see a neurologist so every time they say i don't think it's anything run for your life because this time i was diagnosed with a brain tumor so that's two serious diagnoses within a couple of weeks time well it, it, i was frightened I always told my hematologist that I would not do chemo. So when it came time to treat, after all the conversations I had with him, he wanted to do full-on chemo. So I was also seeing a brain surgeon at UCSF. And he said, if I didn't have brain surgery, I would have seizures. I refused brain surgery. <coughs> He told me to come back in six months and I told him, look, I have cancer and I'm refusing chemo. And if I'm still alive, I'll come back. So there's the, the brain surgeon told me he had done a study with chimpanzees on a cancer drug and then they had really good results. It was a biological drug. That's a target drug that just targets the cancer and not your entire body. He told me, go tell your hematologist you want that drug. The hematologist refused. He said it wasn't protocol. He wanted to give me that drug, but in addition to two other drugs as part of a cocktail. So I refused. And he said to me, 
if you don't do what I say, you're going to die. And then he explained to me how I would die. Now my lymph nodes would impinge on my organs and my organs would shut down and I would die. I still refused chemo. I guess you could say that I chose death over chemo. So if you ask people about me, I think they tell you that I'm a badass. But this was the bravest moment of my life because I was very frightened, but I stuck to my principles and my values. And I want to point out that that doctor gets kicked back on all the chemo that he does. So I believe the doctor and I prepared to die. I had a hospice and the dean nurses in and I found my way to a trial drug at Stanford. It was another biological target drug. It was a pill you took once a day. There was no infusion center. There was no invasion of my veins. So I was interested. I applied, I qualified, and I got in the study. But the drug gave me diarrhea. But like terminal diarrhea, like no matter what I did, nothing helped. I literally couldn't leave the house. So they gave me a drug for the diarrhea. That drug made my entire body swell up with these red itchy welts all over my body. I used to stand up against the wall, scratch my whole body at the same time. So they gave me a drug for that. And that drug gave me severe heart palpitations. I almost wound up at the ER at three o'clock in the morning. So they put me out of the study because I kept getting sick. And as I as exited the study, they wanted me to do a CT scan to get a baseline for my cancer. And I, I wanted the baseline myself. So I agreed. I did the CT scan and the next morning, I woke up paralyzed on the side of my face. Oh, I wound up in the ER. They wanted to do steroids. I refused. I went to an acupuncturist instead. And you can look at my face now, and you might see it when I laugh or talk or smile, but you can't tell even this mouth. My mouth doesn't open all the way here, and my eye doesn't close all the way there. But, but acupuncture got me here where I am today. So now, after the medical community got their hands on me, I have... Neuropathy, which is incurable. I have lymphedema, which is incurable. I have Bell's palsy, which is incurable. Then that's addition to the cancer and the brain tumor. So in that moment, I got it. I got it. Like every drug they gave me made me sick. And then they gave me a drug for that and it made me sick. And then they gave me a drug for that and it made me sick. Where was it going to end? Their treatments, they're just barbaric. And every treatment has a side effect. So I thought, if I'm dying, then I'm dying, but I'm not dying this way. I sent hospice and visiting nurses away, and I prepared to die. But once I got away from all the drugs, I started to feel better, and then better, and then better, and I didn't die. And that was 12 years ago. So I actually believe that if I stayed in the system and kept doing what they prescribed, that I'd be dead or wishing that I was dead. I went off all allopathic drugs. I made a lot of lifestyle changes. 
and started to treat both the cancer and the brain tumor and with homeopathic remedies. In 12 years, my cancer has not advanced. I've had no seizures and my brain tumor has reduced in size by 50%. And that's without brain surgery. I'm here today to say that homeopathy saved my life. I try to starve my cancer, but not eating certain foods. But since my cancer is incurable, I had to learn how to make friends with the tumor and the cancer. So I wasn't fighting every day in my body. I didn't want to be at war every day in my body. I realized that the cancer and the tumor, they both need me to survive. If I die, they die. So they gave me some sense of control over my disease because I no longer felt that I was out of control, which is very common to feel uh, when you have cancer, that something happening in your body and you don't want it to happen. And there's nothing you can do about it. So the cancer, the brain tumor and I all cohabitate in my body. And I like to say that we're all getting along really well right now. So what did I learn from cancer? Which is a question I like to ask you sometime. I learned to always practice patient-centered care, which is why I believe I'm still alive. Just don't get on the bus and go along for the ride. Ask questions, find out what all your options are and participate in the decision-making process. I learned to live every day to the fullest, to stay present and appreciate the day. And remember I said that the AIDS epidemic had taught me to not give a fuck about the small things. Well, now I really don't give a fuck. And it's very liberating, very, very liberating. So this year, I celebrate 80 years of life. I'm incredibly grateful that I continue to thrive and survive. And I absolutely appreciate it every day, so, as you can imagine. So that's my story. Wow. Thank you for sharing. <clears throat> very impressive. And I have to say, I always felt that one of the biggest components to longevity with cancer is holding the mental edge and having a, a positive mindset and trying to hang on, hang in there mentally more than anything. And I feel like from listening to your story and hearing you speak that you have such a strong outlook and such a uh, positive and optimistic perception perception and despite being dealt some difficult circumstances it seems like you really find a way to put yourself in a good spot emotionally and um i think that's marvelous and i really uh give you credit for that because i believe again that that's a big part to staying staying alive when you have a, a disease like this so it, it's impressive and thank you for sharing that that's a really cool story and i do have questions about it for example when people are diagnosed with cancer the typical move it seems like is like those treatments such as chemotherapy what made you not want to pursue that route um <sighs> If you don't mind me asking, mm -hmm. tell us about some of those, uh, I guess, decisions with some of those treatments. So this is always a hard question for me. 
it's not hard for me to answer, but it's hard for me to talk about out loud because there's people all around me that have cancer and that do chemo. And so I don't want to be saying bad things about chemo when people all around me are taking it to survive. So it's. I understand, but I also think it's important to share, you know, every perspective. I have to say, sure, I appreciate that. Because I, I, it's, I don't in any way mean to be disrespectful to anybody else's choices. For Thank me, you. Um, I, I, that's why I just have to make that clear before I say, I always, I always, I used to say, well, if I get breast cancer, you know, um, maybe I'll have the tumor taken out, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do chemo. I always knew I wouldn't do chemo. And it's not because I want to be alive as much as every anybody else, you know, and I'm fighting to stay alive as much as you're fighting to stay alive. It's just what I'm willing to do to stay alive. It has to do about quality of life. If I was your age, I don't know what decision I would make, but I was 68 when I got the diagnosis. So I had had a pretty good run and I thought for me, the rest of my life, I wanted to be quality of life. I'm not about how much longer I can live, but how well I can live in the time I have lived. And I thought that chemotherapy would um, not contribute to my good quality of life. You know, when people get sick, sometimes people die from the cure. You know, they get it. It's just, it's just so barbaric. It's just so barbaric. And I just couldn't, I couldn't do that to myself. It is, it's heavy stuff and the side effects can be grueling. Um, I've, I've definitely been there along with, I'm sure, other listeners and even people who are listening, even if you haven't had chemo first, and we all know what the side effects can be like, and they can definitely be miserable. It sounds like you've obviously found a way to keep yourself going in a good direction. And I also, I got to say, I love how you have that perspective, like the cancer and I, we have a working relationship, right? It's more like, I don't want to be in this situation, but I am. So let's, uh, let's try to have that mindset. I think that's a interesting way of framing it and perceiving and it. So. From control. Can you understand it from that? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a cool uh, concept. It's something I'm going to be, I think, flirting with a little bit as well. Will you tell us about some of the other uh, approaches you did? For example, you talked about um, starving or I'm trying to think of the proper term, I guess just fasting. Lifestyle changes and so forth. So yeah. Tell us about some of the fasting or like uh, diet, if you will, as well. Okay, so let me first say, I'm not telling anybody else to do this. I'm just answering a question about what I did. I'm not a doctor. All I want you to do for my story is to become involved in your own care. Your choices are your choices, but just become involved is why I share my story. You see, sometimes I'm deep breathing while I'm telling the story. It's still emotional, but it's worth it if people can hear my voice. So, so for example, we know that, well, I believe that cancer thrives on sugar, 
dairy because of the inflammation and soy. So I eliminated those three things from my diet. So I'm trying to starve the cancer. I'm not helping it survive in my body. So that's one thing that I did. I, um, the main thing, you know, you talked about this. People always talk about my spirit. And it just, everybody talks about my spirit. And when I talked to my homeopath and I thank her for saving my life, she said, you're alive because you, the, and the, every, the remedies work on you because you want to be alive because you, that's my spirit. So that's really important to, um, you have to spend time with yourself and see where you're at and bring that. But then I insist upon having a good day. I really do try to stay present. You know, when you have a brain tumor, it's a huge mind fuck because everything, if you have like a sinus headache, you go, it's the tumor. If you have an earache, it's, it's a tumor. And it's, so far it's never been the tumor. So can't give in to those things. You, you have to find a way to be at peace and cohabitate. And th those are the kinds of things I talk about. I also practice Tai Chi, martial art, which has helped me to stay present, to do meditations. And that really helps me if any, if I get any kind of anxiety or nervousness, or even if I had to go in for a test or something, I can use my Tai Chi. I use my Tai Chi in so many ways change my life in so many ways, but it'll help me go into a situation and be calm. And kind of think of other things that I do. I know I exercise. I do things that make me hella happy. Like <laughs> I love beach. I love salsa dancing. I found a place where we salsa dance right on the beach on Sundays. I'll probably go there. Wow. No, those are kind of things, you know, be happy, appreciate being alive because not everybody it's a privilege to be alive not everybody has a privilege so absolutely I do very good I yeah it's wonderful I think staying active keeping the body moving it's so important to again longevity and staying alive I feel very grateful to be in California because we have this amazing weather year-round and I was back home somewhat recently over Thanksgiving and I stayed inside for like five straight days. It was so cold <laughs> out. And I remember thinking, yeah, I remember thinking, wow, I, I wasn't sure. I don't think I'd still be alive if I was back home doing treatments because I know I'd be stuck in a routine of staying indoors and probably sleeping and not staying active. And yeah. uh, again, the, the, over time that wears on you, it's not good. You, you got to stay active. So to hear your story and how active you are, even despite the uh, conditions, it's uh, it's amazing. And I want to ask too: Do you still see like a general practitioner? And also, what are some of the responses that you get from other people as you are doing kind of a different? I mean, it is in a sense a radically different course versus a traditional mm -hmm. treatment with cancer. And I, I do love that you recognize that and also kind of say, hey, it's not for everyone and that's okay too. But in, it seems like today, especially in today's society, we're so charged with some of our opinions and perceptions. 
when someone has a different route or a different approach, people don't always they can be kind of nasty about it. So I just wondered, do people how how do people perceive your uh, story and such? Well, I heard two questions there. One was, how does the medical community respond? Do I still see practitioner? You asked me, and then how do uh, people at large? Um, so in the medical community. I have an oncologist that I see twice a year to monitor my cancer. So I do blood work and then I get results and that's all I do. And when I, I um, changed to have her be my oncologist, I told her, I sat down with her and I told her, this is, I'm not gonna wanna do this. I'm not gonna wanna do this. I'm not gonna wanna do this. What I'm gonna do, can you hang? If I became your patient, can you hang with the patient saying, no, 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 no. And she told me that she believes it's her job to give me the information and it's my decision to make. That's what she said. But she always tells me that her a lot of times her patients keep her up at night worrying about the decisions that we're making. And in the beginning, she would um, try to talk to me about other things, allopathic things to do. And, and I would always say no. And then I kept saying, is, is it in my record? Is it in my record that I'm taking homeopathic remedies and that's why I'm still alive? And she would say, well, no, I'm not trained in that. And I'm, I, I said, okay, then I want it in my record. So put it in there that the patient believes that she's doing this well because of homeopathy, because there's, so there's this, friction between those the home uh, homeopathy and, and allopathic medicine so i mean we get along well now it, the same thing happens everywhere i go um brain tumor they're not happy that i don't uh won't have brain surgery you know i now have heart disease they're not happy that i won't uh do open heart surgery and they want me to take beta blockers and i won't do it so they're not happy and they always tell me, well, this is what's best for you. And I'm saying, this is my choice. No. So it's difficult because I want to keep a good working relationships with the medical community because I use them more as diagnoses to let me know where I'm at. And then I'm going to decide what I'm going to do. But um, it's difficult. But what's really difficult <laughs> is in the community at large because it's, I feel really isolated. Like say I'm in a cancer support group and everybody goes around and they're telling, you know, what, what they did, what the treatment they did or what side effects they had or what, you know, and then I'm always the only one in the room that, and so it's hard for me to talk about what I believe when everybody else believes something else, but it doesn't keep me from doing it, but it's harder. And people, um, some people are really uh, inspired, which is really what I want, and they're happy for me, but it's very isolating because I have, I don't have, doc I feel like there's nobody taking care of me. I don't have doctors taking care of me, and I don't have people around me that even understand, you know, why, what I'm doing or why I'm doing it, and they don't have the information that I have. So it's difficult, but it doesn't stop me. Well, I, you should be proud of yourself 
for having that courage to continue sharing your journey and your experiences because not you know it's not like one exact regime works for every single person so it sounds like you definitely are finding something that helps you and if it does help other people and that's great and i again i really admire your approach Mm -hmm. uh, not pushy not trying to change the world but just trying to share your story and how it's helped you and i I find that very inspiring so thank you thank you for that i've always um you know, I came up through the 60s. I was a hippie. You know, I've always, uh, I'm still a hippie. I'm an old hippie. But I've always really lived my life uh, the way I believed it should be. And I've always been the oddball out. So this is really nothing different. In the beginning, I used to think there was something wrong with me, you know, and I was this weird kid, but I've embraced it, you know, and now I'm proud to be the person that I am, but it took me a minute to get there. But um, with, with, with the medicine and, and it's a, it's a problem, it's a problem, but I don't, I'm just determined to live my life as honestly as I can and live by the way I believe. And I I need three things to do that. One thing is I need um, a sense of purpose. And the work that I do with Compassionate Choices gives me a sense of purpose. I need love and community, which I have. I go out and I have dance. We have a great queer community where I live in Santa Cruz. We go salsa dancing. I go to the beach all the time. So I have that gives me balance. And then the third thing is that I need time for myself, for solitude, for myself. And I have those three things. And I always make sure that I have those three things. And you can't worry about what other people think of you. You know, it's, it's a waste of time. You got some good stuff figured out, friend. I love it. I hope Thank their listeners are appreciating you. this. Of course. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about Compassion and Choices and how you became involved with their organization. Well, it's interesting. I don't even know that they know this, but I became I went to them as a patient, a client, because I thought I was dying. So I reached out to them. And then I didn't die. Remember, I didn't die. So um, I had always been an advocate my whole life and I had been working on end of life stuff. So I just flipped over to um, do the work with them. So that's that's how I became involved. But I, I, I'm grateful for the question because I want to talk a little bit about compassion and choices. And I want to go over the bill so that and the law so people know how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this podcast is called Death with is called Death with Dignity, and the End of Life Option Act is the name of the law. And medical aid in dying is what the law provides. So the End of Life Option Act provides medical aid in dying in California. Death with Dignity is the name of the law in Oregon that provides medical aid in dying. So um, all three ter- those terms are interchangeable. I just want everyone to know when I say medical aid in dying, that's that's what I'm talking about. And I had mentioned earlier that I volunteer with Compassion and Choices. It's like a most wonderful organization, a national organization. Um, and they're working to improve care and expand options 
and empower everybody to chart their end of life journey. How we live the final chapter of our lives and how we die are among the most deeply personal decisions of our lives. We have a one size fits all healthcare system, which allows too much needless pain and suffering and compassion and choices is working for a patient driven system that respects everybody's right to make their own end of life choices and decisions, of course, in consultation with doctors and loved ones. And we advocate for expanded, expanded options to ensure everybody can die peacefully and with dignity. And I want to give their website. Um, it's compassionandchoices.org. And I'm going to say it one more time. Compassionandchoices.org. And their 800 number is one 800 2 Four seven seven four two one. So, what is medical aid in dying? Let's talk about that. It's a medical practice that allows mentally competent, terminally ill adults to request a prescription for medication from their physician, which they can ingest to die peacefully in their sleep if and when they choose. So. Let's talk about how the law works. This will be a little dry, but this is important information for people to have. You must be a resident of California, be 18 years of age or older, must have a terminally ill uh, illness with a prognosis of six months or less to live. The person must be mentally competent to make medical decisions and physically competent to self-administer the medication themselves. They can either take it orally, or if they're on a feeding tube, they can plunge it into their feeding tube, or they can use a rectal catheter. Other requirements are making two verbal requests 48 hours apart, one written request, two physicians have to confirm your eligibility and your terminal disease, and two witnesses must attest to the voluntary nature of the individual's request. And only one of them can be a relative. So a person other than the patient can prepare the medication as long as they don't assist in ingesting. For example, they can hold the cup, they can mix the solution, they can hold the cup, but the individual must drink it themselves like with a straw or push it in the plunger and i remember when kim callahan was here she talked about that that part of it as well so my last point which is really important point andrew really really important point medical aid in dying is not suicide and suicide are not the same thing because we hear these terms like assisted suicide physician assisted suicide being used those are just opponents using inflammatory language to discredit medical aid in dying. It's not true, of course, and it's misleading and factually incorrect. People who seek medical aid in dying want to live, but they're stricken with life-ending illnesses. It's offensive to refer to it as suicide or assisted suicide. And suicide often involves people who no longer want to live. People who seek medical aid in dying, they want to live, but they're being robbed of their life by their terminal illness. They understand that their condition is no longer treatable, 
there's no hope for a better outcome and death is inevitable. And there's a huge difference between that and death by suicide. And the law explicitly states that medical aid in dying is not, it's written into the law. Medical aid in dying is not considered suicide or assisted suicide. And doctors must list the underlying disease as a cause of death on the birth certificate. The reason why that's important is because insurance policies often have language denying payment to survivors in a death by suicide. So language matters, everyone, language matters. And I hope everyone who hears my voice today will understand and correct their language when talking about medical aid and dying. So I really appreciate you giving me a chance to use my voice to talk about this bill. And I hope this information is helpful to everybody. Absolutely. I really enjoyed hearing you explain uh, some of those highlights there. One of the things that stuck out to me recently, I had read an article about um, a patient pursuing medical aid and dying. Roger Kligler, in fact, he was involved with Serene's documentary. Uh, he lives on the East Coast. But in the article, the first thing that immediately stood out to me was that the writer kept referring to the process as assisted uh, doctors. Yes, doctor assisted suicide, physician assisted suicide. And I just couldn't um, get past how that it just kept sticking out suicide, 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 that word. And it is to me such a difference and the power in that word versus a term like medical aid and dying is very dramatic in, in how I think people would perceive the topic and the overall kind of idea of it. So I appreciate you highlighting those differences. And I think you're right. It, the language piece is extremely important when yeah. discussing this topic. But, you know, some people use it like when we get the law passed, they would go before the legislators. This is murder, it's suicide and all that. So there's that one kind of person that use it. But there's other people, probably the journalist that you're talking about just doesn't know. And that's why I am on this podcast today. <laughs> that's the it that we have to do is to spread the word and educate people because Maya Angelou, when you know better, you do better. And so those are the people we're trying to reach out to. You're right. You're absolutely right. And that's again, again, another great highlight by you, Lena. Thank you for that. Um, do you consider and have you considered medical aid and dying in your own situation? And if so, have you envisioned what that might be like someday? And if you don't mind sharing what that would be like, uh, we'd, we'd like to hear it and appreciate that. So I have no idea how I'm going to die. You know, if I could I have a stroke and, and uh, then I wouldn't be able to use it or I could get dementia, I wouldn't be able to use it. Um, so I'm certainly hoping that that does not happen to me. Of course, I always like to the thought of dying in my sleep, you know, but possible but not probable so when i envision which is really what your question is how how i use what i think about uh where i'll be you know am i going to be in my bed i'm going to be in my couch where am i going to be who's going to be around me do i want people that really love me around me or is it going to make it harder or is that going to make it 
better. I think about those things. Um, I think about actually taking the medication and um, as honest as I can be about that, that is not an easy thing to do. You know, it's, I tell myself that it's the thought of that is difficult now because I still have quality of life and I'm, and I'm not suffering. I'm enjoying my life. And I make myself think about a time when I'm sick and I don't feel well and I'm never going to feel well again. You know, I always tell people, think about like, and you have like a really bad flu or, or cold or something and you're sick and you're really sick and you feel miserable, but in five days you're going to be better. But the people that use this drug, they feel that feel sick. They feel like that every day of their life, day in and day out. And there's no relief in sight. And so that's why the law is so important. And I tell myself that I'll be able to take the medication uh, because I'll be suffering. So that's the only reason to do it is because I'll be suffering so much and I want to end my suffering. I do believe that the death is... Um, not just something that happens to us, but that we have to participate in. And in a natural death, for example, there's a, a period where you have to let go. And you've heard stories, I'm sure, about people waited for somebody to come from the East Coast to die. They waited for the baby to be born at the wedding, whatever. So that's why I think that 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 we participate in that part of it, you know. So I am I want to do a good job. I want to do I want to have um peaceful death. I always say that I want to have a graceful death, but a little bit disgraceful because I have to keep up with my images my whole life. But on a serious note, um so that's what I'm hoping for. And, and I, to, to that end, I think about my death and I think about how I'm going to feel, what my fears are. Why do I have my fears? How do I get rid of those fears and work on that so that when the time comes, um, I'll be able to do it and it'll be the peaceful death that I hope for. I hope that answers. Beautiful. Oh, it does. Wise words. Lovely. Um, something I think that people can definitely reflect on. How do you perceive or envision the medical aid and dying advocacy moving forward? Do you think that, do you think someday all the United States will offer this as an option to people? Do you think that it's going to be a, you know, a, a big fight to get there? Give us a, I guess. Oh, it's always a, a fight. Everything's always <laughs> a fight. Sure. Um, <laughs> But that doesn't stop us, you know, I think of it, I think of, so think about marriage equality in America. It started out in one state and then another state and then another state. And then eventually there were so many states that the Supreme Court gave it to us nationally. I think that's going to happen with medical marijuana. So I know you didn't ask that question, but I have to get that in there because I think it's important. And I think it's going to happen with medical aid nine. I think that um, I won't see that in my lifetime, but it's just the national natural progression of things. And there'll be struggles. There's always struggles. The struggle continues every day, but so does activism. So that's what I think is going to happen. Do you think that? 
Yes, I do. I, I think, like you said, it, it'll be a little bit of a process and there's always going to be a grind and a battle. But over time, I think that it's an option that people would want to have. I think some of the people who are against it maybe haven't had a lot of experiences with others who are terminally ill and uh, and suffering with, with the disease because I like to think when most people see some someone in that bad of a situation, they'd like to show compassion and empathy and, and give, you know, if that's an option someone would want, hopefully they would agree and yeah, well, allow that. There are some religious groups that I believe that will probably never be on board. But the good thing about this law is that it's optional. It's not mandatory. The word option is even in the title. So what I would say to them is that if you don't want to do this, then don't do it. But why are you trying to take it away from me? That's the part. I, I don't understand that part. And I and, agree. And the thing, the other thing is that everybody, everybody's going to die. And so I don't understand. People act like that they're going to all die in their sleep. You know, they all think they're going to die. You know, and they're not going to suffer, you know. So. You know, I think that it's 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 a compassionate thing, you know, a caring thing in this country, and that we should have the option. Again, it's not mandatory, but we should. Everybody should have the option of medical aid and dying if they want it. I I support that as you know, one hundred percent, absolutely. Tell us a little bit about Serene and the documentary, if you don't mind that. She, I know that she, you're involved with her project. Can you just tell us about her? She's such a cool person. As so are I, you, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm very, very lucky to be involved as well. And I that's how, kind of how we got connected as well for our listeners. Serene is a woman who's putting together a documentary. I'll have Alina speak more to it, but she connected us. So very grateful for that. So, um, so her mother used medical aid and dying to end her life. Serene's mother did. And so she wanted to make a film about it to, to promote it and, and support it. And um, this is a very short version, but what I understand is that she reached out to Compassionate Choices and they told her to go to the website and there were lots of storytellers on there. And um, that's how she picked from the storytellers who she wanted. And, she said that um, she picked me because my story was um, what was the word she used? I think I think alternative. Something my story was alternative. Like you don't even know. So <laughs> <laughs> careful what you ask for. So I agree that she's wonderful. That she's wonderful. She's devoted to the cause. Um, this is a little bit off topic, but I'm going to tell this story about her anyway. So I was on an international Zoom about um, uh, uh, end of life options and medical aid and dying and so forth. And I got a text on my phone that said, I see you with the rain, with your rainbow and your shaved head. Mm -hmm. And so I for a minute I'm like, well, wait, I'm on Zoom. So how come I'm getting a text? I, I couldn't put it all together. And then I looked at it and it was serene. <laughs> it was on the same call. So that was pretty that was pretty cool because I didn't think 
It's a good thing I didn't have my pajamas on that day. <laughs> <laughs> I thought nobody will know me, but um, that's just a sweet story. But um, very alive, very fun. Um, she is. She likes to have fun, and she's serious, and she's good at her work. And Ray, I mean, they make incredible team. You know, um, I don't know what your when they filmed you what it was like, but they filmed me salsa dancing. You know, they cool. All the things I talked to you about, they filmed me. Yeah, Tai Chi. You know, and and her mother and both Serena and her mother were a ballet dancers really into ballet and so i guess it's okay to say that when the very beginning of the movie is a film of barishnikov dancing ballet mm -hmm. and then in this film you see her mother surrounded you know by loved ones and you see her take the medication and you see you don't see her die or anything but you see her take the medication and she has a wonderful smile a wonderful smile on her face so what better message than that you know yeah so. it, it is a very powerful uh powerful project and yes i i believe her and we we hope to have serene on as a guest at some point too so she'll be able to speak more to it but her mother was diagnosed with uh, i believe some type of cancer and kind of forego the treatments but and that's i'm glad you mentioned that too the smile on her face as she was getting ready to move you know to die and move on one of the things that i think i'm most grateful for when considering medical aid and dying is that we would have the opportunity if that's the route that we choose to go to be surrounded by those people that we care about the most and that love us the most and that's such a uh more to me that seems like a much more comfortable way to go versus you know sudden or tragic loss or being alone as well so that's something that i take take comfort in the hospital with ivs all hooked up to you and everything like that so absolutely definitely definitely oh. And just to give a little plug to Serene and her documentary, you can find that video that Alina just referenced at www.outfeetfirst.com. And it's at the very beginning on the homepage. It's just kind of an introductory or trailer for her documentary, right. which covers medical aid and dying and has wonderful people such as Alina in there. And then again, I also was able to get involved. So <laughs> it's been quite the, uh, Quite and the experience. How wonderful that she's using her skill to make a movie. To, I mean, this could go national, international to get the, the word out on it. So it's a wonderful totally. thing she's doing. Absolutely, it is. How do you think your life has changed since being involved with medical aid and dying and this community? As I sit here talking with you and just reflect on the last year or two with this podcast, it seems like it's really opened doors and opportunities for myself as well as the opportunity to meet new people and build relationships and it's been quite a fascinating journey so i wonder if you don't mind speaking as a how it's impacted your life as well so remember i i said i've been doing in the life work for 40 years it was always underground because there was right. no legal way to do anything it was always just fighting 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 so just the fact that that it's legal and that we can talk about it and i can go on 
podcasts and TVs and talk about it. That's a wonderful thing. For me personally, um, it gives me a sense of purpose because there's, I mean, think I'm 80 years old and I'm kicking butt, you know, and so that improves my quality of life, you know, and I wouldn't have that piece of it if I didn't do this work. So I'm going to hasten to say real quickly that whenever I do volunteer work, I always get back more than I give. So that's one thing that I got back from it. And then I have um, used to facilitate a group of for women that were dying. And so I know people in that group that were taking the medication. And so they have personally thanked me. So, I mean, this isn't just numbers on a sheet of paper or that we say, you know, three out of four people. And these are people that are actually using the medication and they're thanking me for the work that, that I did and all that we do. So it's very meaningful. It's very meaningful to me. And I realize that, you know, I've never married. I've never had children. And that was all by choice. And so what's my legacy? You know, people always think, talk about their children, their grandchildren, great-grandchildren. So I don't have that, you know. Uh, again, that was by choice. And so I know that things that I'm doing now will help people, not just help people now, but they're in place. Even after I die, they're just going to help people. And that's my legacy right there. That's my legacy. I wonderful meet, thank I meet, you for sharing that i meet wonderful people so many people that are passionate about this that i never would have met if uh if i wasn't involved in this movement you know and, and there's something about um leaving the world a better place than when you came that's important too so thank you thanks for opening your heart and sharing that with us selena mm -hmm. do you have <clears throat> I like to, I'm kind of running out of questions. I thought you did such a wonderful job of just covering not only your story, but your motivation and experiences with this topic. So if there's anything you'd like to share, please feel free to, to share it with us and the listeners. And I also like to send it over to Hasvan as we of talk. He always, he always has a couple <laughs> gems for us. So should we do that first and then I can wrap it up? Yeah, yeah, yeah for let's sure. do um, right. I didn't have any uh, specific question, but I'm shocked. homeopathy <laughs> is a charged topic. And I feel like you spoke about it with like a lot of grace. Um, what, what I was thinking is it, it's, it's obvious you're not trying to like advocate one way or the other. But then what, what I kept thinking is the outcome is undeniable if you know 12 years of living with uh cancer with uh a quality of life that you're like happy with so no matter if you try or not you're going to be impacting people's opinions on the matter and that's just really uh, fascinating i guess mm. well so what i would say i've said it before uh here today but i'm going to say this again my message to you is to don't, I'm not telling you to make the choices that I'm making. I'm telling you to become involved, be inspired by my story, become involved in your journey and find out all your options and make your decisions. Don't just, don't just follow that protocol. You might do the protocol after you know all your options, 
But that's my message. That's my message to everybody. Be involved in your own health care. That's a good message. Yeah, that's a wonderful message. And I completely agree with it. And just learning that you have to advocate for yourself because no one's going to do it for you. And I think, Lena, you really spoke well to that as well as all the options that are out there for people. So thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. I know that I'm inspired and motivated. You've uh, definitely given me a lot to think about in terms of my own care and my own journey with this disease and just how to approach life as well, that there can still be a lot of beauty and glory and good moments despite being in a tough situation. And you're a true testament to that. So thank you. Alive till you're dead. That's what I believe. Alive till you're dead. <laughs> and I want to, as we wrap, and I, I really want to thank the both of you. This is a wonderful thing that you're doing, giving voice to this movement. You know, you you don't have to do this. This is this is enriching your life as well. And so I'm very grateful and thank you for for letting me be part of it. But be proud that you're doing a great job, both of you, giving voice to this movement. Thank you. We all thank you. Oh, thanks, Fran. That means a lot. And we'll hold on to those kind words. And I know we talked someday at Serene's premiere for the documentary. Can't wait to give you a big That's hug. Right. And I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll smoke some of the homegrown as well. So I'm we'll have some forward fun. To it. <laughs> Sounds good, friend. Well, thank you again, Alina so Hammer, much. everybody. Uh -huh. We really appreciate it. And we can't wait to hear more from you in the future. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Friend. Bye. Thank you.